Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Neha Khanna, Professor of Economics at Binghamton University, and Nick Kumanoff, Associate Professor of Economics at Arizona State University. Along with a team of co-authors, Neha and Nick have just published a fascinating look at the diversity of scholars within the field of environmental and resource economics. In today's conversation, they'll describe what they found in terms of gender diversity, scholarly background, and more. We'll also talk about what it's like to work in the field of environmental economics and what the field is doing to try to enhance diversity and how the community welcomes new scholars into the fold. Stay with us. Nick Kumanoff and Neha Khanna, welcome both to Resources Radio. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Likewise. So Nick and Neha, you're both new to the show. Uh, we're really happy to have you here to talk about this really interesting new paper that you've authored with a variety of other co-authors. But we always ask our guests when we start the show how they got inspired to work on environmental issues in their lives. Um, so uh, how did you each become interested in working on these topics? Let's start with Neha uh, and then Nick next. Thanks. That's actually a really interesting question. And like a good economist, I'm going to give you an answer that has both a systematic and a random component to it. Um, (laughs) The systematic component is that I grew up in New Delhi, India. It's a place I still call home. And in fact, it's where I'm calling into your program from. And as you probably know, Delhi is one of the most polluted cities in the world. Um, Just to give you some context, Today, Delhi's air quality index is above 350, and the primary pollutant is uh, PM 2.5, that is fine particulate matter, which averages around 100 micrograms per meter cube. That's roughly eight to nine times the national standard set by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, and that is 12 micrograms per meter cube, and we're at 100. Um, So it's almost impossible not to think about environmental issues here. So that's the systematic thing. It's always front and center. The random component is actually just a question that a former classmate of mine when I was in graduate school here asked me. Uh, And the question was just very simple. It asked if I knew how much water I used every time I flushed the toilet. And honestly, at the time, I had no clue whatsoever. In fact, I don't even think I was conscious of how dependent my life was on environmental resources. And so that's just what really pushed me over the fence. And once I completed my master's in economics from the Delhi School of Economics, I began to work as a researcher at a local think tank focusing on energy-related airborne pollutants. Once I was on that path, then it was only a matter of time before I decided to do a PhD in environmental economics. And to this day, I work on air quality related issues. Yeah. Well, that's so interesting. Um, Well, there's many more questions I would love to ask you about that, but we have limited time. So Nick, how about you? How did you get interested in this line of work? My experience uh, was quite different than Niha's. I I was lucky to grow up just north of San Francisco in a really... uh, unpolluted area surrounded by open space and state parks. When I was little, I spent a lot of my free time playing outside, you know, building tree forts, catching crawdads in the creek, that kind of thing. This is back in the free-range parenting days of the 1980s. And when I got a bit older, I did a lot of hiking, mountain biking. I ran cross-country in high school. So I grew up really appreciating the value of open space as a public good. And even as a kid, I could see that open space wasn't free. 
Uh, my parents had to pay a lot to live there, and that meant giving up on other kinds of luxuries. So that trade-off was really salient for me, and it pushed me to think about land use planning and environmental policy. Uh, when I went on to be an undergrad at UC Davis, I was again lucky to work as a research assistant with uh, Dan Sumner at the UC Agricultural Issues Center, and there he pushed me to think more rigorously about the economics of open space. You know, how do we measure it? How do we optimally allocate land to housing versus open space? How much are people willing to pay to live near open space, and how can we learn about their willingness to pay by looking at variation in housing prices? Those kinds of questions have always fascinated me. They push me to academia, and I've been working on them ever since. That is great. So, yeah, very different different backgrounds coming to these topics, but it, it makes a lot of sense how you each became interested in them. So today we're going to talk about your recent paper with uh, numerous co-authors. It's in the Review of Environmental Economics and Policy. The paper is called New Evidence on Diversity in Environmental and Resource Economics. Of course, there'll be a link to it in the show notes. Um, let's start uh, the first question with Neha. Can you give us a sense of um, like just what was the motivation behind this analysis? I know it's kind of an obvious question, but how did you and the co-authors end up uh, studying this topic in the first place? Sure, that's actually a really good question. Um, the basic background for the paper and therefore our motivation is around 2019, much of the economics profession made a strong commitment to enhancing diversity, equity, and inclusion in the profession. ARI, or the Association for Environmental and Resource Economics, uh, which is the primary association for uh, the field in the United States and I dare say in the world, uh, made a similar commitment. Um, as part of this commitment, uh, it established a standing committee on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Many of the authors of this article were, in fact, members of that committee at the time. Some of the other authors were students at Arizona State University, where Nick is, and they assisted him in gathering and collating the data. So that's how this paper really came about to be. It was one of the tasks that the committee took upon itself to take stock of the state of diversity within our profession. And the reason we wanted to do this is because while the intention of addressing potential discrimination within the profession is genuine, um, we really don't have a good way of assessing whether we're making progress or what the actual impact of any of our efforts is. And this is something that plagues academia quite a bit, not just environmental economics or even economics. And the reason is because data on aspects of diversity, equity, and inclusion are not systematically being uh, collected. At best, I'd say they're sparse. Where they're available, they are usually gathered in a very ad hoc fashion. So our goal as the committee and therefore as the authors of this paper was twofold. Our first goal was to systematically gather data on some aspects, and we have to be very clear here, there were, we have taken a very narrow view of diversity um, that in, in this particular paper, focusing primarily on women. Uh, but our goal was to provide a snapshot of the state of diversity within environmental and natural resource economics. Uh, while our primary focus is women in the field, we also do include other measures, and this is one of the contributions of this paper, in fact. Um, and these measures include things like academic and professional rank, employer, graduate and undergraduate alma maters, degree year, and country of authors that are publishing in the association's flagship journal, which is the Journal of the Association of Environmental and Resource Economics. So that was our first goal. 
The second goal was, in fact, to provide a benchmark against which we could measure our progress towards meeting our stated goals. Uh, as we go over time, change is slow and we need to be careful to measure where we're going, how we're going, are we on track and so on. Uh, we also hope that by doing so, we will provide a framework and model for other professional associations and organizations to follow and build upon so that we can collectively uh, actually make a real difference. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and the timeline makes sense too. One quick follow-up question is, um, I noticed you did not mention race as one element of diversity that you measure in the paper. And I'm guessing that's because we simply don't have the data. Is that correct? That is actually very, uh, very correct. Uh, most of the data that we um, gathered and uh, analyzed in this paper, and in fact, Nick can, uh, can talk a lot more about it, are data that were either self-reported by uh, various members of the association at the time when they renew their membership or, um, yes, I think that's primarily the time, but there are a lot of gaps in those data. Most people, if you're, you know, ever join any kind of survey or you um, join some renewal membership in some association, oftentimes at the end, there'll be a question collecting or requesting you for demographic information. And I bet most of us just skip that question because, you know, it's another two minutes of our time and nobody wants to do that and that that's the, the source of our information so nick and his students at arizona state actually put in a humongous effort to go to individual members websites and gather data off their websites using things like pronouns uh, that they had used on their websites or other information first names they use a very detailed database and algorithm to predict gender expression uh, based on people's first names given different ethnicities and cultural backgrounds. That was possible to do. The question of race and identifying as researchers people's race is actually very, very, very hard and is fraught with all kinds of difficulties and potentially even, I would say, um, issues of ethics. So we wanted to stay away from that and we our hope is as through this paper, we raise awareness of the importance of answering those kinds of demographic questions that I referred to, and hopefully encourage our members to volunteer that information to us in a way that is best representing who they believe they are. Um, and so that's that's the main reason we focused on things that we had better ways of predicting accurately. Yes. Got it. That makes sense. So Neha, let's stay with you to talk about some of the key results with regard to gender diversity. So what are some of the key results uh, that you find with regard to the distribution of professional responsibilities uh, across gender in environmental and resource economics? Okay. Uh, well, we have two or three key results, um, none of which I think are too surprising, but they might surprise some people. The one main result that certainly came as a surprise to me was that the share of women in the Association for Environmental and Resource Economics has remained remarkably constant since 2000. So that's over 20 years of data that we looked at. And that share is around 29%. So let's round that up to 30. This, this share is almost identical to the share of women receiving PhDs in economics at US institutions of higher education. So that's that seems very, very reasonable. Uh, but what was surprising is that this share of roughly 29 to 30% is nearly double the share of women in tenure track faculty positions in the United States, which is around 
Furthermore, among the women faculty, the vast majority are at the lower ranks of assistant or associate professor. Very, very few are at the rank of full professor. Uh, the fact that we have greater gender diversity at the lower ranks is possibly reflecting recent efforts to enhance diversity within the profession. So I, I look at that as, as actually a very good thing. Likewise, if just sort of continuing in this vein, if we, if we look at the share of women authors publishing in the association's flagship journal, um, which we started in 2014, it's also roughly around 16 to 18%. So again, approximately half of the share of the women members of the association. And if we go back all the way to 1990, so that's about three decades ago, um, and go back to our previous journal, which was Journal of Environmental Economics and Management, um, that share is still the same. Um, so again, you know, there is this, this skewness or this uh, unevenness, I'd say, uh, in the share of women in positions of academic, um, I would say, privilege and authority. Still, what we see is that women have a much greater representation in the leadership of the association, where their share has ranged from anywhere from 30 up to 70% in the two decades between 2000 and 2020. Those numbers vary a lot because the absolute number of leaders is very small. We're looking at about 10 to 11 people. So, you know, a change in one person uh, can lead to a huge percentage change. So I just want to clarify that. However, this, this sort of overrepresentation of women in leadership, this is typical in the economics profession. It's not just unique uh, to environmental economics, but it does imply that women are carrying a disproportionate share of administrative responsibilities. Now, we can't say it's whether it's because women are particularly well suited to these kinds of roles or whether it's because they're more generous in terms of giving their time back to the profession. It could be either one. We have not analyzed that yet. But if it's the latter, it could potentially be coming at the cost of their own professional development. But that's something we have yet to analyze. So in terms of talking about the distribution of responsibilities, I think women have are carrying a greater burden of administrative responsibilities in professional associations, but they have lower representation in, in things of academic repute, like um, higher faculty ranks or authorship in the most uh, prestigious journal. Right. Yeah, those are definitely the things that stood out to me as well when I was reading the paper. And uh, I think maybe one detail to add for context is that the leadership positions that you're describing, they're not like paid, right? It's not like people are getting, um, you know, lots of additional sort of resources for performing these roles are typically unpaid. And, you know, they reflect a generosity of spirit in many cases. That is exactly right. They're all voluntary positions. And I will say this, that the leaders uh, of the association, they're a hardworking group of people. Everybody puts in hours. Yeah. So Neha, one more question for you. Um, you talked a little bit about how these um, shares have changed or not changed over time. Is there anything more you'd like to say about how these distributions have changed over the data period that you analyze? Yeah. So just one last thing, which is compared to the STEM fields, which is science, technology, engineering, and math, economics has lagged behind in terms of the share of women. However, I would like to note that the share of women authors in our flagship journal is trending upwards in the last few years, starting in 2018, and it currently stands at around 26%. So the trend is upward, and I think that's a very, very good thing. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we're going to refer to that journal as Jerry uh, for today's show. That's the Journal of, of the Association of Environmental and Resource Economists. 
And now this next question is about uh, Jerry, uh, and I'm going to direct it towards Nick. Nick, can you talk a little bit about the schools that the authors uh, in Jerry come from, and why you know sort of that educational background matters, uh, whether in terms of like professional training or the representation of society within the field? Sure. First, why does it matter? Uh, well, environmental economics is like any area of science. It, it needs intellectual diversity in order to thrive. We're only going to be able to advance scientific knowledge if we're developing new ideas and new methods and new applications. So how do we measure intellectual diversity? Uh, we don't have a perfect way to measure it, but economists who've thought about this before us have developed some imperfect measures, and we use those measures in our paper. One way that we can approximate intellectual diversity at an academic journal like Jerry is by looking at how concentrated its authorship is across universities. So here's a thought experiment. Imagine we randomly pick two economists from University A from the same Department of Economics. Well, they're likely to talk to each other, to work together, and to be exposed to a lot of the same ideas from going to the same seminars and working with the same students. And so they're going to share similar scientific ideas. On the other hand, if you pick one economist from University A and another from University B, their ideas are more likely to differ. And this implies that if more of the authors who publish in a journal like Jerry are affiliated with the same university, then that journal may be less intellectually diverse. And so with that idea in mind, one of the headline results from our paper uh, is that about a quarter of Jerry's authors work for the top 10 most prolific employers. Eight of those employers are universities, the other two are Resources for the Future, and the EPA's National Center for Environmental Economics. So again, 10 employers account for 25% of Jerry authors. But is that number 25%, is it big or is it small? Does it tell us Jerry's intellectually diverse or intellectually concentrated? We can't really answer those questions in isolation. But what we can do to provide context is compare Jerry to other journals. A couple years ago, Jim Heckman and Siddharth Mockton published an article in Journal of Economic Literature where they calculated the same concentration statistics for uh, what are usually considered to be the five most prestigious journals in the whole discipline of economics, the so-called top five. That's the American Economic Review, Econometrica, Journal of Political Economy, the Quarterly Journal of Economics, and Review of Economic Studies. At those journals, 10 universities account for between 40% and 70% of all authors. The most extreme example is Quarterly Journal of Economics. 70% of its authors work at just 10 universities. Now, the journal's published by Harvard, the editors are from Harvard, and 25% of all of its authors are affiliated with Harvard. If you compare that with Jerry, at Jerry, you have to add the top 10 universities together to get to 25% of authorship. So, you know, these are statistics that may seem striking, but it's also important to keep in mind they're just statistics. They don't prove or disprove the presence of bias or any kind of favoritism in the publication process. They're just describing intellectual concentration at different journals. The bottom line is that when we look at the concentration of authors across universities, Jerry appears to be a lot more intellectually diverse than the top-ranked general interest journals in economics. And that might help to explain uh, why the environmental economics field has really thrived and grown so much in recent years. Yeah, that is so interesting. Um, 
As always on the show, there are lots of follow-up questions I would love to ask, but for the sake of time, uh, I'd like to ask both of you a little bit more of a personal question, um, which is uh, for each of you to reflect on your personal experiences and how much they kind of match some of the findings that you're seeing here in this analysis. And I'm kind of curious whether you have found the airy community to be, on the whole, a welcoming one or one where you know, there is a lot of room for improvement to kind of welcome new members and, and diverse members into the association. So Nick, let's start with you and then uh, we'll go to Neha. I've always found the Aerie community to be incredibly friendly and welcoming and constructive. You know, whenever I go to Aerie events, I, it's great to meet new people and to catch up with all my older Aerie friends. And, and my older Aerie friends include people that I met when I first started presenting research as a PhD student 20 years ago at places like Camp Resources. So I, I think Aerie's terrific. Where I think my personal experience with Aerie differs a little bit from the findings that we've talked about and that we report in our paper is in terms of what I would think of as Aerie's extended family. When I say extended family, I mean people who attend ARI events, like our summer conference, but may or may not be ARI members. Now, my personal impression is that uh, that group is more diverse than ARI's membership. And we actually see some preliminary evidence of this in our article. Uh, ARI did a, a demographic survey of people who attended last year's summer conference. And there, we saw that about 41% of the respondents identified as female. And so that's a lot higher than the uh, approximate 30% of ARI membership that was female in uh, 2020. So there seems to be some attrition you know, in, in diversity. Uh, maybe some people come to ARI events but don't join as members, or some members leave uh, academia. And I think that reducing that attrition is something that could help ARI to meet its commitment to diversity. And I'd expect that we are going to see some um, uh, movement in that direction because ARI's been adding some fantastic programs in the past couple of years targeting more junior members. So uh, ARI created a graduate student engagement program that includes some professional development panels that have been well, really well reviewed. Uh, it also created a mentoring program where junior scholars are mentored by more senior ARI members. So looking ahead, I would expect that those programs are going to uh, increase diversity and attract uh, more members to area in the years ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Neha, how about you? Same question. What's, what's your experience been like within ARI? I think my experience has been very similar. I have been a member since I was a graduate student. In fact, it's the only association I joined as a graduate student. Um, it's my professional home, and um, I literally do consider it like a home, and it's my family. Um, ARI has done a lot for the profession, and it's continuing to do a whole lot more um, along the lines that Nick mentioned, and I'm really, really excited and grateful for all the time that various ARI members are doing and putting in uh, to increase diversity and to help the association and therefore help the, the profession as well. I think, though, if you happen to be, this is sort of related to the question about authorship and concentration of schools. If you happen to be from a not top school, uh, if you happen to be, let's say, from a second tier, a very good, but perhaps a second tier school, Eric can feel a little intimidating. I remember uh, when I first started as a young faculty coming from a school that's not a top 10 school and I started to attend the conference. I did feel a bit like an outsider. I don't think it's intentional. I think it's because Aerie is like a family and you're like the new person who's married into the family and you have to then go in and, and sort of make yourself 
um, you know, a part of the family. So I think there is a little bit of a feeling that Erie can be a bit like a club because people tend to know each other and newer people who are coming in uh, find it hard to break into some of those networks. Now, the, the, uh, the efforts that Erie has put in through its graduate student a mentoring program and engagement programs, I think are designed exactly to address those kinds of issues. Um, I think ARI is absolutely fantastic, but if some of this concentration would get a little diluted, it would be great. For example, the leadership. If you look at historically the leadership, there's a huge fraction of the leaders that are associated with resources for the future, which is an institutional member. Um, but again, ARI is changing that. Um, it's happening in a very organic, natural way. So I think this is all really fantastic. And like I said, it's my professional home and is always going to be that. Right. Yeah. You know, I, as you were both speaking, I was thinking about um, just last week in New Orleans, where, where many of us were together at the big um, ASSA conference, which is sort of all of economics. But there was also a lot of airy activity, including a reception and, and lots of talks. And it really did feel, um, at least to me, a little bit like a, like a home in a, in a real community. And one thing I would just say for graduate students who might be listening or, or younger researchers who might feel some of that intimidation at least for me, when I was at um, the conference in New Orleans, anytime I saw a young scholar or a graduate student, um, I saw ARI members engaging with them enthusiastically and trying to kind of welcome them and bring them into this community and encourage them um, to, you know, talk and share ideas and, and apply to new professional opportunities and, and take advantage of the community that, that ARI offers. So, so I hope that young scholars listening even if they do feel a little bit of that intimidation, can have some confidence that when they do kind of reach out and try to connect with people, they're going to be welcomed with with open arms. Uh, at least that's that's what I've seen. Nick uh, Neha, I'm curious if you've seen similar dynamics. Absolutely, I completely agree with you. Um, there is both, um, like I said, a programmatic effort to uh, engage younger scholars and bring them into the folds, but it is happening, like I said, organically as well. I agree. Great. So this is going to be our last question before we go on to our top of the stack segment, uh, and I'm going to direct it to Nick. Nick, you and your co-authors make a variety of suggestions for future research. Um, can you talk about some of those recommendations um, that are in the paper? Absolutely. Uh, you know, we've spent most of our time today talking about what our study finds. So let me start my answer to your question by talking about what our study doesn't find. Our findings don't provide any evidence that there's bias or discrimination of any kind, either in the publication process at Jerry or in any aspect of ARI business. Uh, if ARI membership or Jerry authorship is less diverse than we'd like, it doesn't necessarily mean there's bias or inequities. There are other explanations. At the same time, we're not saying that biases and inequities don't exist. Our study just wasn't designed to detect them. Uh, and I think, well, hopefully that comes through clearly in our article, it's really important to say. You know, that said, ARI's commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion implies that we have to learn more about the causes and consequences of the statistics that we're using to measure diversity. And uh, our first research suggestion along those lines is a simple one. It's that ARI should continue to collect diversity data and report statistics so that we can track how the composition of ARI membership continues to evolve in the years ahead. Digging a bit deeper, we think it'd be really interesting to study uh, if or how diversity intersects with the publication process in environmental economics. 
There have been some prior studies along those lines, but not looking at environmental economics as a field or comparing it to other fields. And the work that has been done for economics in general has focused mainly on gender. And there may also be more to do to study other dimensions of diversity, like the role of professional networks. Uh, the last thing I'll say is that we think it could be really valuable to study the returns to public goods provision in ARI and academia more broadly. Like Niha pointed out earlier, women tend to take on more leadership roles in professional economics associations. That's true for both ARI and the American Economics Association. But why? And, and what are the consequences? It'd be interesting to study how different forms of professional service, like serving on the ARI board or refereeing and editing journals, how do those forms of service affect economists' productivity, their salaries, their abilities to move up the job ladder, uh, and of course their utility? You know, labor economists try to answer those kinds of questions for the workforce in general. We think it would be super interesting to take models from labor economics and move the lens back to ourselves. You know, what we find from doing that isn't clear. Of course, any kind of professional service has a, a time cost. It crowds out other kinds of productivity, but service can have benefits too. It's possible that uh, job markets may reward some forms of service, and service can create opportunities to meet collaborators and learn from them. To give uh, an example from my own experience, Niha and I met by serving on ARI's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. Then we got to write this paper together with our incredible co-author team, and along the way, we learned that we have a shared interest in thinking about how the distributional effects of pollution exposure arise from heterogeneity and information that people have about pollution compared to sorting on income and preferences and other kinds of things. So service to ARI created an opportunity for me that helped me to learn and benefit. Now, while my experience is just you know, an example, I think that if researchers could measure these types of costs and benefits, uh, in a broader way, the findings could really help us understand uh, the returns to professional service. Those are such great suggestions, and um, we'll certainly be on the lookout for them as people take them up and, and run with them in the in the months and years ahead. So, uh, Neha, Nick, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for your work on this and, and to your co-authors as well. Let's go to our final segment now, what we call Top of the Stack, uh, asking you to recommend something that's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack. It can be related to the environment or not. We're not that picky. Um, but uh, let's start with Neha. Neha, what's on the top of your stack? Well, I start every day by reading the newspaper, no matter where in the world I am. And in fact, if I happen to be in a place that I'm not usually in, I try to find the local newspaper and I scour it for environmental stories. Um, so that's how I keep myself relevant to the field, really. And a lot of my work has actually come out of reading the newspaper or sitting on my front porch and just observing people interact with the built environment. Um, I do have one sort of depressing recommendation, which is the movie Don't Look Up. I saw it just a few months ago, and I think it's a really good parody on the state of, of where we are as a, as a species. Yeah, that movie, goodness. Um, <laughs> it's funny, I actually uh, teach a, a class at Michigan on uh, energy and climate policy, and for years I've assigned a reading from the Breakthrough Institute called Is Climate Change More Like an Asteroid or Diabetes?, and then they made a movie where climate change is like an asteroid. Uh, so it made for good fodder for my class. Um, but Nick, how about you? What's on the top of your stack? You know, I, I try to unwind at night by reading. And my favorite genre is probably science fiction. I, I really enjoyed reading a book called The Three-Body Problem by Lu Shishin. 
It's a part of a trilogy called Remembrance of Earth's Past, and it touches on themes of public goods, natural resource use, and game theory. But it's, it's basically just the best kind of science fiction. It's entertaining, original, really thought-provoking. I would definitely recommend it to any sci-fi fans. I also heard Netflix is now adapting it as a TV series this year, so I've got my fingers crossed that they do a good job, but it's going to be hard to live up to the books. Yeah, that's great. I've heard great things about those those books as well. All right. Well, Neha, Nick, uh, thank you so much again for these recommendations, for your work, for joining us today on Resources Radio. We really appreciate it. It was great having you on. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It's really been a pleasure. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by me, Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.